do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. And teach me knowledge and good judgment. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that you would teach us knowledge and good judgment for the sake of your glory. Amen. Well, it happened to me on Tuesday. I was in the pub with an old school friend. We've known each other 25 years, and uh, I hadn't seen him for ages. He'd moved out of London, and he'd come back, and so we, we caught up, and we talked about all sorts of things that had happened over that period of time. And then it happened. The discussion came round to the church's attitude to gay people. Perhaps you've, you've been there, you've tried to avoid that conversation, but it's sort of come up anyway. It's topical. Your friends want to know what you think about it. And my stomach was in my throat, and I spent a good few minutes trying to be heard rightly without being described by that, that horrible label, homophobe. And by the grace of God, Matt's conclusion was that my position made a lot of sense and was at least coherent, and we, we parted on good terms, planning to meet up again soon. But you and I both know that for many Christians, we're not so lucky. Of course, there are Christians out there who are terribly homophobic and they should be opposed, but for the vast majority of the Christians I know, that's not a fair label. And yet it is the label that's plastered all over us in the press. Think of another occasion. I can go back to my last job in secular employment. I used to work in the accounts office of my company, occasionally up in the, the warehouse in Beckton in East London. The girls in the office were, were straight out of the only way is Essex. Um, and they didn't like me very much, and I couldn't work out why. And then towards the end of my time, I was about to leave and go and work for my church. And so I, I went and said to them, look, can we go for lunch and talk about this? Why, why do you guys not talk to me? And they said, well, you're so judgmental. I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? They said, well, we feel judged because you don't swear like we do. Perhaps you know that sort of experience. You're given a label that isn't fitting because people don't like the way you live. Because you live God's way, and other people feel judged by you. Perhaps you feel that at work in some way or another. You don't gossip the way other people do. You don't uh, get involved in uh, the, the, the licentious chat between people behind people's backs. You, don't, uh, you go and talk to the security guard. You talk to the secretaries as though they're real people. And you set a different example, and people feel judged because you live... God's way. Perhaps you find it at the school gate you have different priorities to the other mums and dads. And so you feel judged because you, you're, you're set apart from their community in some way. And that will be the experience of our children too as they grow up through schools. To a greater or lesser extent they will be different. And they'll feel that. And so it was for the psalmist as well. Just look down at verse 69 in our passage would you please. Page 619, if you've closed your Bibles. The arrogant have smeared me with lies. It isn't that the psalmist is without faults. He admits his sinfulness in verse 67. I went astray, he says. But the way he's being publicly treated, the shaming, the lies that the world have put on him, means that even other Christians have distanced themselves from him. Just look at verse 79. And may those who fear you turn or, or return to me. It's the word for repent in the Old Testament. It's, 
it seems that even uh, faithful Christians have heard what's being said about this Christian and have thought, he's, he's bad news. We've got to distance ourselves from this, this fellow believer. In a world that is mockingly hostile to Christianity, we're faced with a choice, aren't we? It's the choice that the whole book of Psalms, uh, that is the Psalter, what we call the Psalter, is written about. Just flick back with me to page 543, easy to remember, 543 uh, and Psalm 1. Psalms 1 and 2, they set the the tone for the whole of the book of of Psalms. And And the first psalm begins like this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Here's the choice. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That's the choice of the Psalter. Go with the cultural flow, hang out with the wicked, uh, sit with the vocal majority, and at verse 6, the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Or, verse 2, we put down deep roots in the word of God, And we flourish, we're like a tree planted by streams of water in the desert. The the sun beats down, the harsh heat of the the, uh, cultural uh, sun burns on us, and yet the tree flourishes because it's planted uh, by streams of water through the words. That's the choice of the whole book of Psalms. Turn back to uh, Psalm 119, page uh, 619, and look at the beginning of our passage. Verse 65. Do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. Now the word here is the promise of God. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's the covenant promise of the covenant Lord. It's not not simply facts about God. It's not simply some historical details about things that happened to the Israelites years ago. It's an expectation of the psalmist that God will do him good because of what his word says. The Lord has promised to do good to his people And the psalmist hangs his expectations, his hopes, on the promise of God, that God will fulfil his word. And so living in a hostile world, who will say terrible things about Christians, they're very often not true. How is the Christian going to approach uh, the God of the word? And the first thing I want us to notice is this. uh, The Lord who teaches the word brings the good life verses 65 to 72. Now each of these little sections in Psalm 119 begins with a a new letter. You'll see little headings which aren't in English and will be very confusing unless you know the Hebrew alphabet. These are uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order. And so we're at Kate first and each of the the verses in this section, each of the eight verses begins with that letter. So that's how the psalm is structured. Which means that each of the units is is sort of semi-independent. We're going to look at each one of these sections briefly this morning, to see what the psalmist wants to say to us. Now remind ourselves of the, of the situation, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your words. Here, here the writer admits his faults. Uh, the idea of going astray here uh, may simply be um, accidental sins. And the Bible has uh, these two categories, these deliberate sins and accidental sins. And it may be that the psalmist simply didn't know that he was doing wrong. And how many of us have grown up as Christians and look back to our younger Christian selves and think, gosh, the things I did then, thinking they were okay as a Christian. And whatever the, the reason, whatever the, the type of going astray here, he has strayed from God's path and God did him 
good, verse 65, the, the do good there could well be, you've done good to me. And God remains good, verse 68, the theme of this first section is, is the word good, and how good God is, verse 68, you are good and you do what is good. But what is the good that God did to the psalmist? It was to discipline him. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. God has afflicted the psalmist, and the psalmist celebrates this. It's hard, isn't it, to embrace pain. But our physical pain sensors, they they tell us something's wrong. If you put your hand on the hob, and the hob is hot... Uh, you'll get a very quick message from your hand to your brain saying, move your hand as quick as you can, and you move your hand away, and you look and make sure that you haven't permanently damaged yourself. And you learn the lesson, and you don't do it again. And so it is here. The psalmist was made weak, he was brought low, he was afflicted. But he's learned the lesson, and so now he's committed more and more to walking in God's ways. Now I obey your word. He's learned an important lesson. Uh, The pain of the the affliction, the weakness, is not the problem. It's the pain that tells you something else is more seriously wrong. You've gone away from God's ways. And God is getting your attention and saying, turn back. And so the psalmist here is committed to being a godly person. But the innocent, the the insolent, the, the arrogant, the ungodly person, well, they don't see it that way, do they? Verse 69... They have smeared me with lies, publicly shamed, his reputation in tatters on the floor. A godly person, a godly man, treated like scum. And the question is, when you've got these two paths in front of you, what could possibly make you want to walk God's ways? If that's what's going to happen to you, what could possibly make you want to walk God's ways? And and the psalmist offers a number of reflections here. Look at verse 70. The first thing he says is the arrogant are spiritually sick. He says their hearts are are callous and unfeeling. Literally, their their inner being is thick like fat. I don't know if you've ever opened up the U-bend on your sink, you know, where all the fat from your frying pan is sort of gathered and congealed. And it's horrible, isn't it? It's a disgusting mess. And that is precisely what he says is going on in the inner life of the, the ungodly person. Arrogant on the outside, spreading lies about the Christian, but internally needing spiritual liposuction. At the same time as seeing the the spiritual sickness on the one side, he sees the goodness of God's discipline. Verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. There was a purpose in it. God is not arbitrarily punishing his people. He is teaching the psalmist the goodness of God's word. The value of God's discipline is in teaching him to walk in God's ways. This is better than gold and silver, he says in verse 72. So notice the position of the psalmist. He's convinced that God is good. He's convinced that God's word does him good. And so he's made a decision to put his faith in God's word. Verse 66. I trust your commands. And believing what God's word says... That means more than intellectually assenting to something, isn't it? Because the word belief means trust, it means faith, it means means actively walking according to the thing you believe. I trust that this platform is not going to collapse under my feet, and so I stand here. I can make the active choice to stand here because I trust the floor isn't going to give way and cause me to break an ankle. 
And so the psalmist is committed to the word of God. And so he makes two pleas in our passage here. Two pleas. Knowing that God is good, knowing that he only does good, the psalmist cries out for two things. Look down with me, would you? Verse 68. You are good and you do what is good, so teach me your decrees. Knowledge of the scriptures is spiritually gained. We need God, the Holy Spirit, to be at work inside us to help us grasp what the Bible actually means. And so the the, the psalmist is a Christian. He's already saved. But he prays hard for spiritual help to understand more and more of the scriptures. If you've had that experience, you're sitting down to read a Bible passage, perhaps in my case I'm preparing to preach, and I sit down and look at it, and I have no idea what this is saying. I just can't seem to make head nor tail of it. And then I realise I haven't prayed about it, and so I, I, I maybe go and make a cup of tea, and I come back and I pray, and suddenly the penny drops, and you're like, it's just obvious suddenly, because the Bible is spiritually understood. And so the psalmist prays to God, teach me. God be my teacher. And then verse 66 He prays for something else. Teach me knowledge and good judgment. Good judgment. It means more than knowledge in your head. It's it's more than uh, memorising bits of the Bible. It means uh, making wise decisions according to the word. It means uh, understanding the situation you're in, uh, understanding what the Bible would say into that situation, and then making wise choices. It means... Having to have God as your teacher. Teaching you wisdom. Teaching you how to live in God's world. God's way. Through soaking yourself in the word. And so the obvious application for the the Christian who is battered left and right by false accusations is to be more committed to knowing the Bible. Be more committed to knowing the right way to go because we're all prone to going astray through ignorance, aren't we? And So God says, know me better. Keep growing in knowledge of the word. I remember being a young Christian in a Bible study at university. I've been a Christian for a few weeks, I think. And I sat there as as other Christians were were quoting the Bible off the top of their heads. Just randomly quoting really useful bits of Bible that I I had no idea were even there. I I just sat there and thought, that's very impressive, but also quite scary, isn't it? If you're a young Christian, you think, I'm never going to be able to know my Bible like that. I was too scared to pick the Bible up for weeks after that. I thought, I just, I don't know where to even start. Or perhaps you know an older Christian who is just really impressive, godly, wise, seems to be at peace with the world, always has the right thing to say, just has grown through experience and wisdom. Well, those things don't happen by accident, do they? Both my friends, Rich and Nick, and, and the older Christians that we know who are really wise in the Lord. That happens through years and years of patiently praying that God would teach us how to live and then living it. Of course, I must be clear, we don't need to understand the whole Bible to be saved, do we? By the grace of God, we we know that you can be saved very, very easily by, by knowing very little, some very important things, but by putting your trust in a very simple gospel. And yet... The psalmist would say, even as a believer, even as a mature believer who writes scripture, he says, I don't know everything. I don't know everything I'd love to know. God, teach me your word. Teach me good judgment. 
It scares me sometimes as I think about my kids and you know, how much more they've got to know before they can be let loose as adults in the world. Perhaps some of us feel like we need a bit more teaching before we can be let loose in the world, but we're, we're that bit older. And the same is true for, for all of us, isn't it, as Christians? How much more we need to know to be fully functional Christians in every situation. And the psalmist would say, so pray. Plead with the Lord to teach you from the Scriptures. So will you be committed to learning from the Scriptures this year? In our small groups, will you be at small group every week as best you can? Will you be committed to, to reading your Bible in private devotions? Will you be at church, come hell or high water, because you want to learn from the Lord? Will you find areas where you don't know very much and think, what are the books I can read to help me understand what the Gospel says to this situation in my life? Or to this question that I've got? And will you pray for wisdom to live the good life that God would bring if you don't live his ways? So faced with uh, external pressures and lies on the outside, the psalmist actually asks God to make him more godly, set him apart more clearly, remove his hidden faults to teach him and rejoices that the Lord trains him in godliness and secondly the Lord publicly vindicates those who are committed to his ways verses 73 through 80 here the psalmist is still seeking understanding verse 73 give me understanding to learn your commands the same plea is still there but now he turns to another request of God He looks to God to vindicate him in the eyes of the world. So notice the arrogant are still there with their lies, verse 78. The arrogant uh, to be put to shame who wrong me without cause. Literally lie about me without cause. And God has still afflicted the psalmist, verse 75. I know, Lord, that your laws are righteous and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. God is doing good by the affliction, training the psalmist. But now the psalmist appeals to God on the basis of of the deliverance that he's promised in his word in verse 76. Notice with me, please. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live. That call for compassion and love is manifested, he says, in the comfort and the life that comes from God. Here is the psalmist. He's oppressed. He's slandered. His friends have abandoned him and he's crying out to God for a certain kind of deliverance. And it's there in verse 80. May I wholeheartedly follow your degrees that I may not be put to shame. He's being shamed and he says, I don't want to be shamed. I I want the vindication of my name. And in particular, he wants vindication in front of the church. Notice verse 79. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. As I said, the word for turn here is the word for repentance. He's he's wanting the church to do an about face, to return to him. It seems that he's been abandoned by the church. And he wants them to accept him. He wants to be vindicated in front of the church. Because at the moment he's, he's ashamed. Perhaps the church has believed the lies about him. Everyone has fled from him. He's all alone, smeared with lies, despite the fact that underneath he's a godly person who's committed to God's ways. It's a terrible situation to be in. And yet the psalmist knows that if God shows them his godliness, if he opens their eyes to his, the truth of, of his godliness, they'll rejoice in him again. 
because they'll recognise his godliness. Verse 74, may those who fear you, the same phrase again, rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your words. What a change of scene. The psalmist restored to fellowship with the church again. Why? Because he lives according to the word of God. He's, he's living the good life, God's way. And when God shows the rest of the church that that's what's going on, well then he'll be vindicated. He shouldn't bend, he shouldn't become the thing that everyone thinks he is. Instead he's committed to living completely God's way and let it be in God's hands when everyone sees that that's the case. Now, of course, the psalmist, I think, is writing as a regular believer, but of course, uh, every passage of Scripture takes us to the Lord Jesus. And the question here is, um, how is Jesus the fulfilment of this passage? Well, of course, Jesus was the ultimate godly man. Uh, according to uh, Isaiah, he was taught by God to know the Scriptures uh, perfectly. And of course, Jesus was smeared with false accusations, at his trial, he was abandoned by the church, left all alone, in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out for another way. And yet Jesus remained perfectly committed to God's ways in his literal trials, knowing that God would vindicate him in resurrection and restore him to the church and the church to him. Jesus, you see, in the first case, is our perfect model of humble submission to God in the face of trials. He lived well, despite the slanders of others. He's the perfect example of God vindicating his children in glory through his resurrection. So Jesus is evidence that this psalm is real. This is what God does. But more than that, Jesus is also proof that God uses the unjust shaming of his people to bring about his glorious purposes. Because, of course, Christ died for our shame. Our humiliation was what he was going through on the cross. And he was raised to glory, as we will be. Our salvation as Christians depended on his willingness to live God's ways and suffer the shame and humiliation that came to him uh, because of his godly life, before he was able to experience glory. And it may be that the salvation of a loved one, a colleague, a friend, will depend on our willingness to endure shame and scorn from other people, uh, willingly, until God gives us our glorious vindication. So the psalmist uh, cries out to God for, to be trained by him for godliness uh, more and more. He cries out to God for timely vindication before the eyes of the church in particular. And then in in our third section, uh, he teaches us to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Our final two points we're going to move through much, much more quickly uh, because they basically build on what we've already seen. And in many ways, verses 81 to 88 are a direct continuation of the previous section that we've just seen. Except the situation seems to be coming to a crunch. Did you notice that as Julie was reading for us? The image in verse 85 is the psalmist as a a desperate wild animal. The arrogant dig pits to trap me. He's he's fleeing, but they've dug pits. They're trying to catch him. They're trying to trap him. I'm being persecuted without cause, he says, verse 86. And so he cries out, 
almost single words of pleading to, pleas to God, verse 84, how long? He's trusting the promise of deliverance. But this has been going on for a while now. How long, Lord? You wonder whether this is hyperbole, this is poetic hyperbole, or, or whether it's dramatic reality. But verse 87, they've almost wiped me from the earth. That same uh, verb is used three times in this section. When he says in verse 81 that my soul faints with longing, it's the same idea. He's been almost wiped out. His soul has almost expired with his longing for vindication. Verse 82, my eyes fail, perhaps through tears, perhaps he's just physically broken. He's at the end of his uh, his physical rope. Perhaps all he can see is the persecution that comes his way and he's just desperate. Either way, the psalmist is on the edge, but he still trusts, doesn't he? Verse 82, when will you comfort me? Verse 86, he simply cries, help me. Verse 88, in your unfailing love, preserve my life. Comfort, help, preserve are all salvation words. They're rescue words. When things are at their very worst, will God deliver according to his promise? And again, it's easy to see Jesus on the cross, isn't it? In the very worst of situations, offering up his spirit to the Lord and saying, I trust myself to you. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Trusting the goodness of God. Trusting the promises of God that even though he is dying, he will be vindicated in resurrection. Of course, the application to us, I take it, is obvious in one sense. Like Jesus, in the face of persecution, even in the face of death, we must continue to promise, trust the promises of God in his word. The certainty of resurrection, the certainty of vindication and life. And we will receive ultimate deliverance. But I don't think this, this stanza is, is restricted to final salvation at all. The psalmist is at his wit's end. He's suffering public shame and perhaps even physical abuse for being a faithful Christian. And we can well imagine how that sort of thing might happen in the office as we're, we're pushed to one side and, and treated badly by other people because we live differently. But the psalmist knows that his God is the God who has a habit of rescuing his faithful people. So even in his temporal situation, his, his in the office or, or, or in the school gate situation, he's looking for deliverance there too. Will we trust God when things feel very, very bleak? When we've trusted him and things seem to have got worse before they'll get better? That's what happened to Jesus. That is how God works sometimes. Will we prove faithful to him because he will prove faithful to his promises in the end? And even in our trials, verse 75, I know, Lord, that your laws are righteous and in your faithfulness you've afflicted me. Even in our trials, God is working for good to bring us back to his ways. And then fourthly, and very briefly, deliverance comes through the word. One final point to draw out, really. I'm going to just take us to verse 93. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Notice what the psalmist doesn't say here. He doesn't say, God... I know that you save people according to your promises, so save me. That would be pretty good. 
That would be true to what the scriptures say. Rather, he says something stronger, I think, and something striking. He says, God, I know that you saved me by your words. It's the words that are saving. Now, in one sense, that shouldn't be new to us, should it? Because we trust God by trusting the things he said, don't we? As Christians, we believe the gospel about Jesus, and it's trusting the words of God in the scriptures that bring us into saving relationship with God. We trust in the Jesus that has been revealed to us in the scriptures. But I think the psalmist is doing something slightly more. He takes us back to verse 66 again. Teach me knowledge and good judgment. See, the psalmist longs for the blessed life, the, the good life. A life delivered from many of the world's problems. Its cares, its concerns. He knows that by living wisely, he avoids a lot of the things that are heartbreaks for, for our friends. All the troubles and the pains that uh, the love of money and our idolatries bring us into. How, how, how many difficult conversations in our relationships would be spared from if we were just godly in the first place? If we would just learn from God and live faithful to his words. He says, Lord, you preserve my life by your word, by, by the things you've told me to do. As I obey your word, you preserve me from all manner of heartache and difficulty. It is by your word that you bring about the good life. Let's draw things together and apply. Whether you are new to Christian things or a very long-in-the-tooth Christian me, I take it the obvious application for all of us is to be committed again to learning from God's ways in his word. So will you commit to studying the scriptures this year? And when you're faced with a difficult decision, or frankly with any decision, will you go back to the scriptures and say, what does God say is wisdom for this situation? And when you're faced with trying times, whether it's God's correction for your sinfulness or public disgrace for being a Christian, and it will come. Will you trust that in God's timing he will vindicate your name and you will be seen to be the godly son of God or daughter of God that you were all along? Isn't it through the scriptures that God so often delivers us? We walk in his ways, we're spared from so many trials. Perhaps, I say this from time to time, perhaps we should make a habit of thanking God that because we walk in his ways, we're spared from so many things that we don't even realise would happen to us if we were walking in God's ways. I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, being in God's ways means we're spared from so much else, as Psalm 1 would have us know. Uh, also, will, will you cry out in prayer? I mean, let us in prayer earlier for Christians around the world who are being unfairly shamed. It is normal for Christians around the world to be called all manner of things, to be treated shamefully in the public square? Will you stand with them? Will you pray for them? Will you stand with Andy and myself? In the fullness of time it will happen that because of the things we say from, from the stage here in our sermons, trying to be faithful to the scriptures, a public shame will come our way. Will you stand with us or will you distance yourselves from us? Will you own us as your pastors, very easy to tell, I don't really know those guys in the office when our names are banded around. It happened to, to my old pastor 
in the national press. Very easy to go into the, into the office and just pretend that's not somebody that you know and trust. When you write to those people who've been shamed unjustly, if you know of somebody who is receiving unjust treatment, would you stand with them to encourage them? Would you pray? Would you publicly identify with them? Would you say to people who, who call them names in your office, would you say, no, no, I know those guys? despite the fact that you'll be tarred with the same brush? Will you remember a saviour who bore your shame and mine in faithfulness to God before he was gloriously vindicated in his resurrection, his transfigured glory, an imperishable life that can never receive any stain or spoiling? In the end, whatever the ups and downs of this life, whether you're in good times or difficult times, will you commit to living God's way today? Knowing that however hard it is in this life, we will share in the bodily resurrection of Christ, which is a glorious vindication. And let's pray. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Heavenly Father, we know that's true in the ultimate sense. By your words, by showing us the truthfulness of your words, you have brought us into saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that is a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. But Father, we also know that you preserve us from much pain, many trials, uh, many uh, fights and arguments and bitternesses, and much heartache from our idols as they fail to serve us, as we turn and trust you and your words. And so I pray for each of us here uh, this morning, that as we uh, look at the year ahead and we uh, try to decide how we're going to prioritise things, would you please cause us to prioritise uh, delving deeply into your words. Uh, please preserve us from the uh, the attitude that says, I'm, I'm established as a Christian, I don't need to learn anymore. Help us to be hungry like the psalmist, to be taught by you, that we might know knowledge and good judgment, that we might live well in your world. Amen. <laughs>